welcome back to Cloud and Fire. This is season one, episode four. The theme of today's episode is divine justice. On season one, we continue to consider the theme of how and where we are experiencing the steadfast love of God. As we continue through this season of Lent, one year into a reality that has shaken our nation and our world, a question that I would love for us to consider that comes up during this conversation today is the question of how we are protecting the things that are sacred to us. We've not been able to share space together in our houses of worship. And even when we do worship from home, we are surrounded by the distractions of this life. And so how do we determine what is sacred? How do we take care of the things that are sacred? And this is a question for us, not only now, but also in our future. When we return to some form of normalcy, how are we going to take care of? How are we going to guard? How are we going to protect the things that are sacred to us? I invite you to consider that question today. Without further ado, let's get into the episode for today. I'd like to share a story with you from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I will read verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their table. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us that you for, for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Our guest today is the Reverend Erica Wimber Avina. Erica is an interim ministry specialist and church consultant. She is currently serving as the interim senior pastor at the First Church, which is in West Hartford, Connecticut. Erica is a graduate of the University of Oregon and Yale Divinity School, and she is the author of several articles about Baptist history and of some adult education curriculum. Erica is married to Robert Avina, who is an attorney, and they have three children, Sydney, Rob, and Noel. Thank you so much, Erica, for joining me today. Jamie, it is a delight and a joy to, to be here. Thank you. So, Erica, we heard this passage that is probably familiar to those of us who have been in church for a while, but it always strikes me in a very particular way to see Jesus act this way in the temple and share this prophecy. So what's the first thing that comes to mind for you when you hear this passage? 
If I'm only thinking of myself as I listen to this passage, um, I have to be honest, I, I have always appreciated it, Jamie. I have always appreciated it. I am not by nature a patient person. I am not by nature a steadfast person. And I have um, just so much appreciated that we get this image of Jesus um, finding an opportunity to get to render justice in the house of the Lord. He's claiming that for himself. Um, and as much as I know that justice is often something that we work at over lifetimes and generations, it's just a bit of a relief to see him seize the day and, and give us that, that image of justice. So I have to say personally, I have always appreciated it. I, I do yearn for justice. Um, and I, it's just like, you know, it's the good guy wins, Jamie. The good guy is winning. And I love that. I mean, who doesn't love a happy ending, right? You know, that's a different take than I've usually heard on the passage. I think I most people are so appalled to see Jesus, as you've stated, seize the day. So you've said that you really like seeing the good guy win. What does that mean to you? You know that expression, uh, winning the battle, but losing the war. Uh, I mean, this is a moment, um, and in, in John's gospel, it comes really early in the gospel. We're in the second chapter here in the synoptic gospels, and it's in all, all, of, all four of our gospels. It's right before the events of Holy Week. Um, so you see Jesus had kind of had this early victory, and then you see the events of Holy Week kind of unfold. Of course, Palm Sunday is very happy moment. There, there you're celebrating the Messiah who he, who he's identifying with, and then you know the the events of his trial and death are sad, really, really tough. So I I kind of see it as part of that whole um, the arc of his life, um, and this is. Because we have it in all four Gospels, like it's really clear that this was an important story to the early believers. Definitely. And I think you're right. It's important to see Jesus have this moment of being the victor. One thing that I've really been thinking about a lot, especially having come out of the season of Advent, and we have that story of King Herod who wanted to kill the baby who he felt was a rival to his throne. Yeah. And Herod expected that what it meant for there to be a new king was this kind of violent overthrow. And mm -hmm. this is really the only time, as you've said, in the Gospels, mm -hmm. it's not violent. But we do see Jesus being reactive, which is something that we don't get to see elsewhere in the gospels and in the ministry of Jesus. So you're right for that one reason of helping us to see that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, that it angers Jesus when people are making a mockery of the temple. I think that's really important. And, you know, I'm thinking about you are an interim pastor. So you've 
you've gotten to work in a variety of church spaces, but now in your ministry um, at First Church, you've mostly been away from the space of the physical building. And yet there is something so special about these buildings in which we worship. What do you think this experience that Jesus has in this physical space of the temple, what does it have to say for us right now as those of us who are mostly away from our physical worship spaces? Hmm. Yeah, we've been saying to one another quite a lot, you know, the church is not the building. And, And that is a hard thing to say to people who have been giving sacrificially to support a building. I mean, the, the building is a totem. It stands for something in our communities. But what it really stands for resides within the hearts of the people who would gather there if they could. Um, I mean, one of the great things about this image is Jesus is he's being creative as he is being destructive. And he's quite literally setting his own house in order. I think that it's important to note, because it's a violent kind of um, picture that is painted, which is, and we can get into this more, like people don't react to this well, but the people who are actually inconvenienced at the tables are already well aware that they are profiting by taking advantage of people who are there for honorable purposes to worship. I mean, that's what our people do when they come to worship. They're there just to worship. They're not there to take advantage. I mean, I get very upset if I find somebody has come into the church and is trying to run a pyramid scheme on my congregation or trying to uh, engage them in kind of shady financial dealings. And that is what Jesus is driving out. I think that's, it's just good news. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's this question. So I have the pleasure of working with undergraduate students. And for the past couple of years, um, I've been teaching in a class where we specifically talk about racial history in America. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we talk about, especially when we study the 20th century and activists like Chicano activists and Black power activists who refused to allow themselves to be harmed and brutalized without also responding to that with equal and appropriate force. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this image of, of violence, right? Like, so my students and I have had to think about, is that an example of violence or is that an example of people refusing to continue to withstand systems that are actually oppressing them? And so I think that's so important, the distinction that you just named that Mm -hmm. perhaps the word for that is not even violence. The word for that is protection. That Mm -hmm. really what Jesus Mm -hmm. is teaching us is that we have to protect what's sacred. And in this case, this temple is sacred space. Yeah, it's well, and not to do that is really a perversion of the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that the, the scriptures don't have a lot of images of what divine justice looks like. You know, I mean, what, where do we, where do we look for that? Um, Noah's flood, uh, even, even God repented of that afterwards, set a bow in the sky saying, oh, we're not, I, the, here's my covenant with you. I won't destroy you again. That, you know, sort of setting the space off against that violent and um, 
you know, what, is, what does divine justice look like? I guess the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got Abraham kind of bargaining with, with God, how many of them need to be righteous for you not to destroy this city? <laughs> is it 50? Is it 40? Is it 35? Is it 20? Uh, it, so like that, that's another kind of image there, um, the Tower of Babel probably one of our most ancient scriptures in and of itself, so hard to understand. Like, what, what is divine justice there? How is that? How is God working there? Um, or when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and finds the people have built a golden calf. Do you remember what he, this, this is one of those details in the scriptures that just always stunned me. Like, you remember he asks them to grind the golden calf into powder. He puts it in their water and makes them drink it. <laughs> what? What? So divine justice. And then we come to the New Testament and, and Jesus is flipping over tables. I mean, at, at least the, the tables are like, I actually, as a pastor, I understand that. We do sell things in the churches. We try to sell them for good reasons, not bad reasons. We try to, you know, uphold the world by what we're doing and not uh, contribute to uh, a rapacious kind of uh, business exchange. Yeah, this question of divine justice, that's so compelling, right? And it's something that I think so many Christians from all different theological perspectives think about so often, right? Like yeah. that, that always yeah. comes up whenever there's a natural disaster, whenever mm. right now mm -hmm. we're going through the pandemic, is this mm -hmm. God punishing us for X, Y, or Z thing? And I think Jesus makes it clear that this is not the reason why these big cataclysmic events happen or why people suffer. But I think it's still a complicated question that's, that's often in our heads as people of faith. If we serve this God who is so loving, if we serve a God who is a creator, then why are we facing the challenges that we're facing in this life? I also think it's so fascinating that Jesus, you know, that I, I guess he doesn't, uh, he doesn't say it outright, but John, uh, the gospel writer does clarify for us that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body that would be destroyed. <laughs> Which is just also so John to say, yes, well, actually, he was speaking of, what do you make of John's interpretation there? I, I think that's fascinating. I, you know, that John has that. And also um, earlier, Jesus has made a whip uh, and used it. I mean, he's clearly using it with the cattle and the sheep, but the, the way it's written he might also you be using it on the people. You can't quite tell what's going on. And then, yes, yes. And well, your question though is about um, what about the temple of his body? I do think that connects um, this scripture for John to the larger arc of the story of Jesus um, and that divine justice does come in the end with the resurrection, um, even though there is a crucifixion um, to, to get through. And because this is early in the, the book of John, it's really setting the stage and the themes for what is coming before. Right, John always likes to make things make sense. And there's always a very 
po- there's a poetry to this yes. gospel, right? Yes. Like one of my favorite scriptures comes from the first chapter of John, in the beginning was the light, you know, yes. you know, this this imagery that John loves so much. And so I do think that's really compelling. And you're right, it makes the entire story work, but there's also yeah, it's there's there's always a lot there with John. There's always a lot to work with. What were you saying about the whip, though? Let's talk about the whip. Why why does that stand out to you? When people take offense at this scripture, which people inevitably do, like right. I have never, I preached on this a number of times, um, and always had someone come up to me who clearly connected the violence that they see in the scripture with the violence they have experienced in their life. Mm-hmm. And the violence they've experienced in their life has been abusive. Right. And they're, they're concerned that they're seeing Jesus as abusive. And John's gospel has got a whip in his hands. And it's hard to understand. I think it's hard to see our savior with a whip in his hands. Um, right. But it, it we are also, I mean, Jesus has really asked us to think again about the kind of Messiah that we're welcoming. Are we welcoming the Messiah who solves our troubles or are we welcoming a Messiah who is, who is solving trouble? Um, I, the whip is a tough image. I guess that's, I just want to say that out loud. Yes. And I, yeah. And I think it's an especially tough image if we do connect that to him talking about the temple of his body that would Mm. be destroyed. And Mm -hmm. we know that one of the weapons that's used against him is a whip. And so it's interesting to see that whip returning the, Mm -hmm. the same instrument that we might say as he used as a tool of violence in the temple when apparently also talking about the temple of his body and then it's used to destroy him. So it, it, it does always cyclically seem to come back around for John in a very particular kind of way. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I mean, I guess the other thing I just really wanna emphasize about this is that um, this is the same savior who asks us to turn the other cheek. Uh, you know, if somebody asks uh, for your cloak, give to him your tunic also. If they want you to walk with them one mile, walk with them too. Um, and I, I guess I, I really think this is a balance to those other kind of statements. Um, it's not, there are wrong things and you do need to stand up when things are wrong. Mm-hmm. And this going on in the temple on that day with those people, it was wrong. And so you've brought up this important ethical point, right? Like this is this is a Christian ethical question of how do we respond when we see that things are wrong? Uh, I will bring up that, bef- that that you are in West Hartford, Connecticut, and I, I know some of the history of West Hartford, Connecticut, and um, I know that you're serving at First Church um, in West Hartford, which has done a lot to reconcile with their, uh, their history of having been the church of people who owned enslaved people and brought enslaved people to worship there. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, you know, I think, sadly, we think of uh, slavery and racism as having certain geographical boundaries. And we think of slavery as being something that existed 
only in the southeast of the United States of Virginia and South type of phenomenon. And, and what we learn from a true study of history is that it existed all throughout the East Coast and that yeah. New England benefited um, in extraordinary ways um, mm -hmm. from transatlantic mm -hmm. slavery, whether they were owning slaves or benefiting financially from it. And so the question is, what does it look like for older churches um, like First Church and other churches throughout this country, even divinity schools throughout this country and, and all of these sorts of spaces that have really benefited from unpaid labor, right, of all mm -hmm. sorts of people and underpaid mm -hmm. labor of all sorts yeah. of people. What does it look like for us to stand up and in a Christian ethical way and to kind of confront each other with the reality yeah. of the sin that has happened? Yeah. So that's the question I think we all need to be focused on. Like, like let's bring it to the current moment and say, what do we do? Uh, and I just want to say, I, I really think this is important in light of Jesus's actions in the temple. Like he sees the day that was his moment. So our moment today, uh, the church I'm serving, Jamie, was begun in 1713. So well before the founding of the country, right. um, under completely different circumstances. Um, no one person in the congregation knows all of that history well. We are all just basically studying and learning it as best we can. Um, but it's, it's not like it's embodied in any particular person. And you're totally right. Um, the weight of that history has rendered um, that congregation and that community tremendous resources um, taken from the labor of people who were enslaved um, in addition to their own labor. like, <laughs> And then history remembers, um, in our case, one of our big projects this summer was, um, I was telling you about before we began recording, our green, our town green, which is actually land that the church owns, uh, the church owned actually all the land that was given at the center of West Hartford, um, we gave it to the town for their town meetings and the halls and the uh, highways and all of that was all originally land that had been gifted to the church by a fellow by the name of Timothy Goodman. And um, he turns out to be a slave owner. Uh, we've been calling this green in the center of town, Goodman Green. This is such nice alliteration. Right. <laughs> and, and then someone pointed out Eat on Slave. We were like, what? Uh, it was actually last year on, they were having the town's first Juneteenth celebration on the green. And someone said um, to the mayor, you know, we're sitting on land that was owned by a slave owner. How ironic was that? And everyone was like, wait. That's not right. <laughs> Wait, like, there's a slave owner who gave this land, and we're still celebrating his name. Um, and you know, that's not a point of unity for the town. That is a point of tremendous hurt. Right. Uh, and continuing to use that name um, and to leave the not the monument there without recognizing. We know of the names of at least four of his enslaved um, people, uh, and without you know recognizing their work, and I suspect that there were probably lots of others. So what we did uh, was we joined with a community group, concerned parents of color, who really challenged the name, the way that space was named, 
um, and we help to uh, guide and lead uh, the a renaming of that space, uh, which we hope will open up a future where more lives, more histories can be remembered and celebrated uh, on the town green, which will now be Unity Green. Um, we're gonna leave Mr. Goodman's monument there. We're going to add some other monuments as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I've learned in this pandemic, Jamie, is this cool uh, technology, which is the QR codes. Uh -huh. And most, if anybody has a cell phone with them, you can use your cell phone kind of uh, go on the QR code and you, what we're going to do is just uplift, um, the, uh, put the stories of the people whose names are being remembered in the SoundCloud so anyone can walk along that green area and listen to the, the histories that are being recorded there. We have a wonderful history of um, Native Americans in mm -hmm. that community, um, many of whom were enslaved as well during that right. era. Um, and, you know, the church, they you know, they lived in a time of slavery. They were not um, above it. They were part of it. Uh, many of the enslaved persons were brought to church. We're proud to say that the enslaved people um, were baptized there and they had the right to vote in the church long before, you know, that happened anywhere else. So in some ways, there are some glimmers of hope mm -hmm. uh, that people were keeping another view of humanity alive. Um, but I, I think it comes back to, you know, Jesus in the temple saw things are wrong and flipped the tables, you know, really call, called everyone's attention to how things are wrong. And I think that's, that's what we're called to do too in our day. Yeah, that's such powerful work that you're describing of having a reckoning and allowing it to be something that not only that the church can move forward, but that the entire community can move forward because the church has participated in the mm -hmm. work of moving together into a mm -hmm. different future. And mm -hmm. I think that's really a beautiful message for people of faith in general, because I think sometimes we we, we sit in our faith and, and we don't know how to move our communities forward, but it was right. partially the, the work of the church and the work of members of the church that allowed that important work to happen. And I think, you know, especially with the, the culture of so many churches on the East Coast, so many of the older churches, right? Going back to the 18th century, 19th century. And, you know, I study 18th and 19th century history. I, I, I love reading about that era and learning more about it, but there are certain names that always come to the surface and certain names that are always kind of buried underneath. And it's just so, beautiful to know that there are congregations who are committed to doing the work of not only remembering that history, but also figuring out a way that we can move forward in more ethical ways in yeah, light of what we thing. now know. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's not enough to recognize that the people at the money changers tables were doing wrong. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not enough to say, oh, that's wrong. Too bad. <laughs> I feel terrible about that. <laughs> you know, you got to change. You got to move forward. You got to, okay, okay, that was definitely wrong. Now, what are we going to do from here? Where do we go from here? Yeah. Right. yeah.
Well, I did not know that this scripture would lead us in this direction, but 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 here we are with this important Christian ethical question, but also with this excellent example of the kind of work that's being done at First Church to try to move forward, um, as you've said, to do more than turn over the tables, but really to figure out after we've turned over the tables, now what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> Well, great. Well, thank you so much for that really rich reading of this scripture. And I have one last question for you. We are, of course, moving through times of grief and sorrow um, as folks in churches, as as just Americans, as we recognize that we've lost so many, um, both because of the COVID-19 pandemic and for all other sorts of reasons during this past year. And so as we walk through these days of loss and grief, how and where are you experiencing the steadfast love of God? That's a great question. And I, I have to say, I really I love your theme there. It's really nice. Um, the, I'm serving right now a UCC church and um, United Church of Christ Church. And their theme for the whole United Church of Christ nationally has been going on for some time called God is Still Speaking. I have to say, I just love that theme. Um, it, it creates space and God is infinitely creative. And that is something that I personally am taking to heart right now. I, this, if you're not sick with COVID, if you're not with family members who are suffering with COVID, and Jamie, we have a lot of people who are really sick right now. If you're, if you're in a space where you're okay, this can be a tremendously creative time. We have, I mean, look at us. We're trying to figure out podcasting. Uh, I, I, in the last year, I've apparently become an expert at doing virtual worship, something I did not have any interest in at all <laughs> last February even. There, there's a tremendous um, creative kind of, uh, upwelling, thriving that is happening in our culture. As, as much as I, on the one hand, am grieving with those who grieve, um, there, there's also a lot happening. Um, and I think it is a time to be encouraging the creativity and imagination, innovation that we see around us um, and helping one another, especially uh, figure out the technology, you know, figure out how to do what you need to do, even, you know, in this COVID environment, where you can do it safely and do it well, do it to the top of your game. I, I am finding a lot of um, excitement around that. And also, I have to say, so grateful for my family, because uh, we're, we're well, uh, and great to have more time with the kids at home, they would have been away at college right now. Um, so that that has been a particular joy as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I, I definitely can relate. I was not planning to be in church ministry at all in 20 or 2021. <laughs> and it's really uh, strangely because of the pandemic and because of this need to have ministers like myself who have been trained in this era of yeah. doing so many things virtually and doing so many things online and churches kind of having a need for that, uh, mm -hmm. that there was a call for me to be a virtual ministry associate. And it's been such a gift 
because for me, and I always share this with my colleagues, I'm getting to do ministry in a way that feels really authentic to me. What feels authentic to me is to be online and connect with people in this way and get to be creative and innovative because as you've said, we have no other choice. We can't Mm. continue Mm. to do things the way that we've always done them just because that's what we do. We are forced to try something new. And that's very much my personality of always wanting to try new things. And, um, you know, I get so many fewer no's now because everybody's like, well, I guess we have to try something. So it's been a real gift. I've gotten to, of course, meet my colleagues, which I, who I would not have met if I hadn't been in this, um, had this incredible opportunity. So I agree with you, the new ways that we've been able to find to connect with each other and even the ways we've been able to connect with people under our own roof has been a way that I've experienced God's steadfast love. And it sounds like you have too. So I'm glad to know there's someone else who's having that experience. So listeners, this has been an incredible conversation. We've gotten to speak with the Reverend Erica Wimber Avina, um, who is an interim ministry specialist. And it's been such a joy to get to talk with you, Erica. And thank you so much for sharing your incredible insight. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Cloud and Fire. You can find Cloud and Fire on Facebook and Instagram at Cloud and Fire Pod. The series that we are experiencing right now is all about steadfast love. So when you find us on Facebook or Instagram, let us know how you are experiencing the steadfast love of God. I'm your host, Jamie Crumley. Cloud and Fire is a production of First Baptist Church in Beverly, Massachusetts. Our theme music is by the talented Rebecca Silva. Until next time, be well and get home safely.